All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again, as we should always. ask you to help us to kind of set aside some of the preconceived notions that we often have about certain people or certain aspects of of Scripture, and open our minds and our hearts to looking at things uh, perhaps in in a new light or a different way. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you on all things in Jesus' name. Any burning questions that you have to get off your mind before we start? Sometimes that does happen. You walk in and I just got to get this answer. Today we're going to... uh, talk about Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. I'm not going to say first, but you do know that there is a second uh, letter, but the emphasis will be on the first letter, Um, and I do recommend that you read the second letter when you have time, because it's uh, a little more personal, Uh, it's not near as long as the first letter, and it has a lot of good things in there. The first letter also, I'm not going to go into all of the details because much of it reflects the same kind of situation uh, that we discussed in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, wherein there was sort of a clash of cultures, you might say, uh, between the Jewish people who embraced the Hellenistic culture uh, outside of Israel, and many of the the Greek people, that is the non-Jewish people, who began to be interested in Christianity, we're facing a clash of cultures. And that is because Hellenism, uh, which had been around for uh, nearly 300 years by that time, uh, was really taking hold throughout the entire Mediterranean area. And it was uh, both, it had good and bad uh, parts to it. The good part is that it was very progressive. Uh, It was encouraging education. Remember, it was based on Greeks, Greek philosophy, Greek theology, uh, Greek theory in many ways, uh, because it was established by Alexander the Great, and it was sort of forced on many of the people to begin with, but after a while, people began to see the good part. Unfortunately, because of its uh, relaxed mores, uh, there was a lot of uh, negative parts to it, too. And this is what Paul is facing. And not to digress, but not only Paul, but all of the apostles when they went out to preach and teach, they were met by a lot of opposition 
particularly from other Jewish people, because the Jewish people had been so bound to the law and tied to the law that they almost had a difficult time breathing on their own. And when Hellenism came by, it was a great relief. And many of them clung to it uh, as a form of relief from the strictness of Judaism. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it was a great deal like our culture today with young people and the electronic uh, invasion, you might say. Uh, could you imagine trying to teach kids today about penance and simplicity and self-denial? It would be almost impossible. I bet every one of you had said one way or another, I'd hate to raise some young kids today. Uh, and that's true, because the culture since the invention of uh, the miniature electronics in all forms of communication and entertainment, etc., um, has really changed the lifestyle and the thinking and the spirituality of many of our people today. Not only the young people, but many of us little more mature people as well. Okay? And that is what these apostles were uh, facing. And we'll kind of uh, restrict our discussion today on what St. Paul has taught us. Unfortunately, we have no understanding of what the other apostles uh, experienced or what they were up against. But we assume it was a great deal like uh, the things that are written here and in the other letters of Paul. Thank God for these, because if it wasn't for these letters, we would have no knowledge of the early church. Remember, if this is at the same time period um, when the forms of religion and devotion to Christ or to God through Christ, was not uh, laid out in, in any formal way. In fact, the Mass itself was still conducted by anyone who really was sincere in offering the body and blood to Christ. Uh, there was no formalities. So you had a lot of looseness there, and people did their own thing, many of them uh, with good intentions, but it was like an entirely new lifestyle altogether. And of course, that was something that came up against the, uh, the Jewish people. And that, of course, is what got Paul in hot water when he started to preach and teach that the Mosaic law had now been fulfilled and the Jewish people didn't have to follow all of those laws. Well, of course, that created a lot of confusion, particularly those people who were sincere in following all of those rules and regulations. 
So we have a number of clashes, which I call a clash of culture. So I don't want to go into a lot of this stuff, but some of the details here, I think, are really necessary. Uh, Paul had a difficult time in teaching what he believed in because he had no way to back it up. There was no other writings at this time. The only thing is that they had the two sacraments that they were aware of and really um, took sincerely, and that was baptism and the Eucharist, or what we call the Eucharist today, or the offering of the body and blood of Christ, or sometimes they call it the breaking of bread. All right. Uh, those were the only things that they could teach. And, you know, just how many times can you repeat the story of Christ giving us his body and blood, and why? Even that wasn't thoroughly thought up. But we have uh, a number of problems here, or the absence of... Um, formal understanding, and it made life much more difficult uh, for Paul and the other apostles. I don't mean to ignore them in any way. It's just that, like I said, we don't have any written records of their experiences. Even John, who lived a long life, uh, presumably to the end of the first century or sometime around that, uh, time period, didn't leave any writings about himself. We know very little about uh, John um, the Apostle, and also about his brother James, uh, who became the uh, chief bishop of Jerusalem after the other apostles migrated out into other parts of the Roman Empire. Okay. I'm going to just talk briefly about some of the problems here in the first uh, part of uh, this letter to the Corinthians. And one of it was that as the uh, development of Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, there were a number of leaders that uh, emerged as being very important uh, and very successful. One of those was a man by the name of Apollos, A-P-P-O-L-O-S, um, who was often compared to and um, tried to kind of overtake what Paul had taught before. But finally, uh, he got the message that his teachings had to be in line with Paul, and he became very helpful. But for a while, that created a problem in itself. Um, but there were a few others. And Peter goes to task in this letter here about saying that our faith should not be based on any human being. 
regardless of how saintly they might be. And that's true today. We often hear, and I think I mentioned in one of the meetings uh, recently, that when Father Dillon retired from St. Peter and Paul's parish up there, a number of the people, well, the whole population of the parish just disappeared. Uh, and that was because they were so beholden to Father Dillon, who was a very wonderful man, and his, he could say more in two minutes than most priests could say in, say in ten minutes, and it would be meaningful. Uh, and so I can understand why they may have been drawn to him. But it is a danger for us to take our eyes off of Christ. We should not be doing that. Um, yes, it's nice to have somebody that helps us along in our faith, but our faith should be based on Jesus Christ and his teachings uh, and no, under, no other human individual, not even Mary. Mary is would be the last person to want attention to uh, herself. And if you are aware of many of Mary's apparitions, they were always for the purpose of bringing attention to her son for the greater honor and glory of God the Father. All right. So keep that in mind. That was one of the problems that Paul uh, faced, and we believe uh, that he successfully got through to these people, um, but not without a lot of problems. There is a whole section, three chapters here, involved in various um, questions that the converts to Christianity uh, had, and naturally so, uh, because many of them were different from the rules and regulations that they had been following before. Uh, the few Jewish people that, uh, the Jewish people had a very strict concept of marriage and their laws, and still do in many ways, their laws uh, reflected that and, of course, created a lot of the strength and the weaknesses of such. But the Greek people um, had a very loose idea of marriage. They respected women far more than the Jewish people, but there was also uh, the idea of taking advantage of, of women as well and without in, any repercussions or uh, any other um, concern. But anyways, uh, there are a number of things here also that uh, I don't think are really uh, of, of great importance for us today. For example, offering uh, meat to idols. Uh, Many people have said to me over the years about the sacrifice of various animals uh, in the Jewish sacrifices. And I said, well, you've got to remember that 
Well, that's not much I can do about it. All right. Um, I, I don't know what the problem is, but. Hmm? Don't move. For me, that's impossible. <laughs> and for keeping quiet, that's, you know, next to impossible. Um, well, I'll do the best I can, but uh, anyways. I forgot where I left off. Now, Justin, see what you did, you know. <laughs> This, the idea of meat offering, offered to idols, many people have been concerned about the uh, sacrifice, sacrifice of so many animals. Uh, what a shame and so forth and so on. And I said, well, not really. The animals were only sacrificed in part, but most of the edible meat was given to the people. First to the priest of the temple, but then to others as well. So it wasn't wasted. Uh, you know, you hear about the slaughter of so many animals uh, for various sacrifices. Well, yeah, that's true, but much of it was not um, a total waste. All right, so we don't have to get too involved in that. Uh, the other woman's headdresses. Well, I don't think we have to worry too much about that today because most people, uh, most women don't wear any headdresses at all to the church. But years ago, I got to tell you a little side story here uh, about proper dress in church. When I was married, I was married in Europe. And my wife, of course, came from the United States and brought her wedding dress with us because I was stationed there and was going to be there for a long time. And so the wedding was set up. One of the guests showed up with a strapless white gown. And when the priest of the parish, this is a little parish uh, in Naples, Italy, uh, when the priest of the parish went out for some reason into the congregation, his eyes just automatically bulged at seeing this uh, lady who was rather uh, well endowed uh, <laughs> with his strapless white gown on and he thought she was the bride. So he comes in and he said to me, I can't, you can't get married here. And I said, well, why not? And he said, your wife-to-be is indecently dressed, and she cannot come up to the altar. Uh, I thought, well, I knew that my wife-to-be had a dress that came up to here, you know, with long <laughs> sleeves, so forth and so on. Of course, they were talking about two different women. And then we had the chaplain from the uh, base come in and who was actually going to perform the service, but this was during a Sunday mass in a parish church. And he saw the lady who was to be my wife, and the priest 
from the parish was thinking about this other lady who was the guest, and they started arguing about the appropriateness of the, you know. Well, finally, we, to make a long story short, we all got it straightened out, but it was touch and go there for a little while. Uh, well, anyways, uh, I don't think this is uh, that important for us to discuss today, but both men and women should be aware of wearing things that might uh, cause people to be distracted. I don't like wearing uh, shirts that have some big sign on the back, you know, uh, because when you're sitting behind somebody like that, that's all you can see for a while. So people just be aware of wearing the appropriate clothing to church, particularly on Sunday. Okay. <coughs> The idea of the Lord's Supper was uh, another major item in this letter here. And again, it had to do with the same idea, since there was no formality uh, dictated by the church, because there was no central authority of the church as yet. Uh, people would just do what they felt was right, but many of them went to extremes as uh, customs have a way of doing. When you, you do something over and over, uh, whether it be good or whatever, uh, you sometimes uh, inject your own feelings, your own thoughts, uh, your own ideas, etc., etc., and it's a lot different. This is why, and I've mentioned this several times, I think, in the past, this is the why, why the priest has to read the uh, liturgy at Mass. They cannot ad libit. They cannot do it from memory. They must read it. And that is to avoid uh, their putting their own words and finally getting different ideas in there. Sometimes better ideas, but most of the time, uh, it's uh, things that are not correct. And so the rule is priests must read uh, the entire Eucharistic prayer at the Mass. Uh, if he wants to inject uh, his own words at different times, there are times appropriate for that, and then there's times when that is not permitted. But the whole idea is to avoid the problems that are mentioned here. Um, one of the problems, of course, that is also mentioned here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians is when the wine is used, a lot of them uh, went to extremes. You know, all we need is a sip of wine uh, and a small uh, token of bread to remind us of the body and blood of Christ. Of course, the seriousness has really not gotten into the people here in Corinth yet. Uh, the whole idea of the sacredness of the Mass had really not developed until many of Paul's letters were analyzed by theologians 
and the whole idea of the theology and the sacredness of them began to be developed. And that took a while and probably did not become uh, fixed until around the end of the first century. Uh, also, the mass uh, or the breaking of the bread ceremony was separated from the family meal to a separate ceremony eventually towards the end of the first century. But you can see the problems, I think, involved in having it as a casual part of your dinner meal. You know, and you swat one of your kids across the, the back, of course. Uh, if you didn't do it right, then, you know, you'd have another problem. You have to get up and feed the dog. And, and then there's something else. Uh, somebody calls you on the phone. You have all of these little distractions during your regular meal. Uh, can you imagine trying to develop some sincerity, a, a quiet time during your meal? or the breaking of the bread ceremony. So that's what Paul is up against, uh, over-drinking and uh, not taking it seriously. I assume that the other apostles had the same problems. Excuse me. <coughs> other spiritual gifts. Since the teaching of the coming of the Holy Spirit was sort of vague in Paul's teaching because it hadn't been thoroughly thought out. In fact, the whole idea of uh, the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation was really not thought out until after the Council of Trent in the 15th century. 16th century, excuse me. Uh, and then it was yeah, not until Vatican II in the 20th century when it was changed from Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit. Now that seems like a big change, but actually it is a rather minor thing since Holy Ghost, the idea of ghost came from the German word Geist, uh, and which is also means spirit. So it's just changing it from uh, something that came to us through the German uh, into a more acceptable English word. Also, there was a slight mention of the fact that Holy Ghost uh, frightened children, and it was difficult to get children to understand that uh, because they had been told, you know, about ghosts in, in other ways. Um, I don't think that's uh, that important for us uh, today. But as part of the benefits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Paul goes into a lot of detail about the various gifts. Uh, and I would like to read some of that because it, it is rather important. Let's go into chapter 14. Uh, 
And I'm going to back up uh, after this because I haven't forgotten 13 as well. Extremely important. Excuse me for the pause here, but I'm all thumbs today. All right, chapter 14. Prophecies greater than tongues. Tongues was a phenomenon that came from the first Pentecost Sunday. If you recall... Pentecost was a Jewish holiday, not a holy day, but a holiday. Uh, and many people were in Jerusalem in that particular year, immediately or 40 days after, or 50 days, I should say, after uh, Christ's death on the cross. And they were celebrating the holiday. All right. The Holy Spirit descended on the apostles on that particular day and that was uh, by intention because it was a way of getting a large number of people from other parts of the Roman Empire uh, to witness the coming of the Holy Spirit and the apostles you know, who were cringing in the upper room for fear that the uh, Romans or the Jewish uh, temple rulers were going to come after them and crucify them. But once the Holy Spirit descended upon them, uh, they blossomed out immediately and Peter went out and gave one of his great uh, speeches that we had talked briefly about before. But at the same time, the whole idea of uh, gifts were given by the Holy Spirit to the various people there. <coughs> and this is what Paul is talking about here. Uh, he had just finished his great chapter on love, which I will go back to a little later. Uh, but I want to get to this one here. Uh, pursue love, but strive eagerly for the other spiritual gifts uh, mentioned above. Um, above all that you may uh, prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to human beings, but to God. For no one listens. Are you familiar with the whole idea of speaking in tongues? So many people are, and a lot of people are not. All right. The idea of speaking in tongues is supposed to be a gift from the Holy Spirit if it is authentic. And I've known a few cases where it was not. But if it is authentic, uh, a person may speak in tongues and it sounds like a lot of gibberish. Uh, and yet they're very sincere and it can go on for a while. 
not just a, you know, a few words, but there can be uh, several paragraphs of if it were all written out. And people are just dumbfounded because they don't understand it. But if it is authentic, there will be somebody in the audience who will be able to interpret that, who will be inspired uh, to understand what is going on. They may not realize it, but all of a sudden they will be inspired to get up and interpret what was just said. And it is generally for the benefit of a large group. Uh, I have experienced this on several occasions when I was uh, very active in the charismatic renewal in Los Angeles for many years. Uh, the convention there on Labor Day weekend, uh, which I attended and was actually part of for many years, we had a number of people who would experience the gift of tongues and at the same time there would be somebody in the audience who would get up and say that they had the interpretation of that. And it was always a message that the Holy Spirit would give to the congregation uh, and it was something that was generally uh, of a positive nature. Rarely was it ever a warning or something frightening, but it was something that was always uh, positive uh, and we were asked to follow it. Um, so that's what Paul is talking about here. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to human beings, but to God. It is like a prayer to God, okay? Uh, for no one listens. He utters mysteries in spirit. On the other hand, one who prophesies does not speak to human beings for their building up. Um, I'm sorry. Does speak to human beings for their uh, building up or their betterment, encouragement, and solace. Whoever speaks in the tongue builds himself up, but whoever prophesies builds up the church. So you have prophecies, tongues, teachers, leaders, and so forth and so on as the various gifts. Now, brothers, if I should come to you speaking in tongues, what good would I do if I did not speak to you by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or instruction. Likewise, if inanimate things that produce sounds, such as flute or harp, do not give out the tones distinctly, how will what is being played on flute or harp be recognized? And if the bugle gives an indistinct um, sound, he must have brought, belonged to Harry James Band or something. Yeah. Uh, who will get ready for battle? Similarly, if you, because, if you, because of speaking in tongues, do not utter intelligible speech, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be talking to the air. It happens then that there are many different languages in the world and none is meaningless. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, 
I shall be a foreigner to the one who speaks. And the one who speaks it uh, is a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you, so with yourselves, since you strive eagerly for spirits, speak to have an abundance of them for building up the church. In other words, he's saying, don't get caught up in the idea of speaking in tongues. A lot of people thought it was just fashionable to go around uh, gibbering uh, without people understanding it, and that is not the purpose. Uh, if you don't feel truly inspired to speak, then, pardon the expression, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yes? Uh, now, what was the idea? Why were they speaking in tongues? To draw attention to what was being said. Uh, and it was also something that it had the label of the Holy Spirit on it, it if it were genuine. But that's very rare. That's very rare. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray to be able to interpret or have someone else interpret for them. If I pray in tongues, my spirit is at prayer, but my mind is unproductive. So what is to be done? I will pray with the spirit, but I will also pray with the mind. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will also sing praise with the mind. Otherwise, if you pronounce a blessing with the spirit, how shall one who holds the place of the uninstructed say, Amen, for they will not understand, since he does not know what you are saying. For you may see Paul is saying the same thing that I just did. Make sure that if you feel inspired to speak in tongues, make sure that there is somebody that will be able to interpret it. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go on here. Brothers, stop being childish in your thinking. In rest, retrospect to evil, uh, be like infants. But in your thinking, be mature. It is written in the law by people speaking strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me. Uh, but you see, at Paul's time in this particular situation, this became a problem. People were going out, going around babbling and you know, putting themselves up above everybody else, but no one else could understand what they were saying, so what good was it? Uh, I don't want to belabor the point. Let's go on. I'd like to go back to chapter 13, because this is one of the gifts as well. Uh, I'll read it, and then we'll go on. And you've heard this many times, I'm sure, in church, but... Let's take another look at it. If I speak in human, an angelic tongue, but not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith 
so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may be boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous. Love is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not speak in its own interest. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially, and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present, I know partially. Then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. For faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. To me, that's just kind of a, a prayer in itself. What he's talking about, of course, is spiritual love. Love that we receive from God and hopefully pass on to others <clears throat> through our actions, through our speech. Uh, and it takes priority over all other things, all other matters. And again, if we do all kinds of, of charitable works, but don't do them out of love, then what good are they? God will not give us. One of my favorite parables or stories of the Bible is the story of the son that wanted to go off and do his own thing. And so the father, you know, this is often called the, the prodigal son, it should re really be called the loving father, in a way, um, because the prodigal son did go off and finally did learn his lesson and wanted to come back. <clears throat> but what is often forgotten is the other son. The other son stayed behind, did what he wanted, I'm sorry, did what he was told to do and what the father wanted, but he resented every minute of it. And the point really here is that without him doing it for love, what credit is it other than any other hired hand? He was not honoring his father. He was doing it out of fear or out of hoping to get something in the end for himself. Yeah. And of course, the father says, 
everything I have is yours because he had given half to the other, the younger son. And the older son knew that, but resented it and dishonored his father by not going in and celebrating when the younger son came back full of remorse and regret. So there's an example there. Um, uh, there's a book by Henry Nouwen, uh, a very prominent Dutch writer, priest, uh, called the, Re uh, the Return of the Prodigal Son. It is not, you know, it's the same story, but he goes into all these other little aspects of, as I just did now here, uh, of the son, the other son, and of the father. And eventually he talks about we should not aim to be uh, either son. We should aim to be like the father. It's a beautiful prayer, not uh, or, or book. Not very long, but very well worthwhile if you have an opportunity to read it. Any questions so far? All right, let us go on. The last part of uh, this letter to the Corinthians is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you recall, half of the Jewish people thought that there was some form of life after death, uh, mostly the Pharisees, which is surprising because they were, they were so uh, hung up on themselves. Uh, and the Sadducees were very much against it. I always jokingly say that is why they were sad, you see. <clears throat> because they didn't believe in the hereafter, but neither side, of course, uh, had any understanding of what life after death would be. There was no thought in Jewish theology of returning to the Father to live thereafter for all of those faithful. Um, so they really didn't know. Now when the whole idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was presented to these uh, people in the Roman Empire by Paul and the other apostles, they met with all kinds of uh, resentment and interest. Many people took to it uh, because in the Greek-speaking people, they had no direction, they had no guidance. They had a lot of freedoms, but freedoms without guidance and direction can generally run them up. And that was what was happening in the background. So they clung to uh, Paul's teachings, but they really didn't understand it. And one of the things that was most misunderstood was the resurrection of Christ, and furthermore, the resurrection of all human beings who uh, were saved. 
and we'll get to that in a few minutes here. But I'd like to go through and read some of this and then stop and explaining it as best I can. <clears throat> now I am reminding you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received and in which you also stand. Through it, you are also being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I handed on to you as of first importance, that is the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, uh, then to the other twelve. Well, actually not all of twelve, because um, Judas was gone by that time. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers uh, at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And after that, he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. He's, Paul is referring now to the 40 days after the resurrection in which uh, Christ appeared to several people uh, for the establishment of the church. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace in me has not been ineffective. Indeed, I have toiled harder than all of them, not I, however, but the grace of God that is with me. And therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach and so you believe. I think a very important statement. As we go on, if you have any questions, just let me know. But if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, that means all those who died in the good graces of God, even though they may have gone temporarily to purgatory, they eventually got to heaven. Remember, everyone in heaven is a saint. Not formally designated by the church, but by definition. Remember, God cannot accept anybody to be with him forever who is not made holy. And therefore, by definition, everybody in heaven is holy and therefore a saint. That is what the word saint means, holy. I want to back up here. But if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Remember, the Sadducees said there was no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then empty is our preaching. Empty is your faith. 
then we are also false witnesses to God because we testify against God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your faith, you are still in your sins. Your faith is in vain. All right. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The whole idea here is if we do not take the resurrection of Jesus Christ seriously and understand it and apply it to ourselves, then our faith is in vain. We cannot just assume or ignore it as something that the church teaches, but I don't particularly want to understand it. I can't understand it, therefore I'm not going to try. Uh, and that is something I've heard people say. And, you know, you're losing out on the benefit of what this tremendous gift is. It is the whole essence of our faith. This is the epitome or the apex of God's plan of salvation. And we've got to understand it. The whole idea of salvation comes to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. No other way. And if we don't understand and participate in that, we are losing out. I'm not saying that you're going to go to hell in a handbasket but you're losing out on the great gift of knowledge and understanding that goes along with that. Okay. Now, but now Christ has been raised. I'm going to repeat this a little bit. Has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits in Jewish society in Judaism in general, the first fruits of any harvest, of any crop, was always offered in a sacrifice to God the Father. And it was part of Judaism and taken very seriously. But this is being changed now. But now Christ has been raised from the dead and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. For since death came through a human being, death came through who? Adam, right? Death came through Adam from the evil one, of course. Uh, for just as in Adam all died, so too, Christ in Christ shall all be brought to life. Now, so too, I would not use those words because it's putting it on sort of the same level. Um, just as all died through Adam, all shall live through Christ. But each one in proper order, 
Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to his, to his uh, God and Father. When he has destroyed every, every sovereignty and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. That is, Christ has to be the head of all believers until all believers are taken to heaven. All of non-believers, unfortunately, lose out. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for death will be no more. For he subjected everything under his feet. He, meaning God the Father, subjected everything under his, Jesus' feet. But when it says that everything has been subjected, it is clear that it excludes the one who subjected everything to him. In other words, the Father can't be subjected to himself. Okay. When everything is subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected him. All right, this is a, what sounds like a bunch of words. What it is saying, what it is saying, and this is something that a lot of people have never thought about, and yet the church does not teach it uh, because it is not something that can be uh, fully explained or proven. But we know that the Trinity is involved here. All right? And that is what he is talking about. The Father has given life to mankind through the death and resurrection of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, when the end of the world comes and all mankind are separated between those who are saved and those who are lost. The lost, we forget about. But those who are saved come into the good graces of God in heaven. And then there will be no need for a trinity. It will fold back into one God. Because when we are in heaven, we cannot say, well, I'm going to go down the aisle here and visit with Christ, or I'm going down and visit with the Father or the Holy Spirit. There will be no need for that. We will all be together and we will be worshiping, worshiping the one God. Now, like I said, the church does not teach that because it is not thoroughly understood or thought out. But this same idea is mentioned again in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> yes. No, 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 no. We We are still human beings, remember. We are not uh, part of God in that respect, you know, God is within us, 
in the same way that our parents are within us. Yes, yes, that's a good point. Paul is very difficult to understand, so don't feel bad, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't get it all, okay? Pray that the Holy Spirit will open your minds and your hearts. But, yes, as Dick said, this is typical Paul. All right. And that's why I wouldn't dare say this was on my own. Okay. Um, I, I'm backing up here a little bit. Moreover, why are we endangering ourselves all the time? Every day I face death. I swear it by the, the pride in you, brothers, that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. If at Ephesus I fought with beasts, so to speak, what benefit was it to me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be led astray. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. But if someone may say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come back? Remember, we're talking now about the human body being raised for those who were saved. You fool, what you, <clears throat> what you sow is not brought into life unless it dies. This is in verse 36. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel of wheat, perhaps or some other kind. But God gives it a body as he chooses to each of the seeds in his own body. In other words, like I often say, when I uh, am resurrected with my body, I'm going to have some hair. <laughs> no, no, you got that backwards. Nobody's going to have hair because we are Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, my son. <laughs> Not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for human beings, another kind for flesh for animals, another kind of flesh for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the brightness of the heavenly one kind, the heavenly one, the heavenly one kind, and that of the earthly another. The brightness of the sun is one kind, the brightness of the moon another and the brightness of stars, another, for stars differ from stars in brightness. In other words, when we come back, we're not all going to look like puppets or robots or whatever. We will look differently as we probably do today. Like I said, I'm going to have hair. Okay. All right. All right. All right. As, as Dick said earlier, uh, this is Paul. It is not easy. And wait till you get to next week with Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm, yes, to the Romans. Let me just 
How much time do we have? Oh, there's good time. All right. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk about that in a little while. Okay. <clears throat> Let us go on. Uh, verse 50. And this I declare, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we all, will all be changed in an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now he's talking about those people who remain uh, at the end of the world but have not yet died. They will have to die before they can go to heaven. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we still be changed. For that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my brothers, be firm, steadfast, always fully devoted to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. While I'm reading this, I'm thinking of young people today who seem to be not really concerned uh, about their soul and about their life in general. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I have six grandchildren and some great-grandchildren as well. Uh, but they just don't seem to get it that this life is temporary and that eventually we will all pass away into something totally different. And if it is not with God, what is it? An empty waste. And yet they don't seem to be concerned or understand and of course there's no one really out there to teach them and that is the sad part about it we are you know with the demise of the catholic school system as it used to be i was over at st rose this morning <clears throat> just as the young kids were going from the school into the church and i was thinking how fortunate those few are because they will get the essence of a Catholic education and learn some of the things that we here uh, are trying to learn. But they'll learn it from the ground up and it will become part of their life. How fortunate they are. But this is relatively a small number. I think St. Rose only has a, around 150 students. 
in their elementary school. Uh, but young people today are not getting the education uh, about their faith and about who God is and their relationship with God as they should. And how sad that is. So if you have influence over young people today, make sure that they get, such as I did uh, last week, I had lunch with my granddaughter who just had a, a baby. Um, and so I said, uh, well, what about the baptism? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about that, Grandpa, but I've got this to do and that to do and so forth and so on. And then they stop and say, well, yeah, really, is that the important? And I thought, oh, what a shame. I said, uh, you want the best for your children, don't you? Yes, oh, yes. You know, they get vaccinations and all of that. Hopefully they get the measles vaccination um, and all other kinds of medications. But I said, well, that's what baptism is all about also for a child. Yes. Well, that's, yes, you're, you're right. To grow up as a Catholic requires nurturing and guidance. And it can't be all left up, uh, to the priest or the nuns. It's got to be from the family. And, right. If the parents do not lead that, uh, then unfortunately the child fails through no fault of its own. You're right. Yes. So I'm not trying to preach to you, but um, those things are so important and we seem to really not give it a lot of thought. The last paragraph here has to do with the taking up of a collection. This is mentioned in other letters as well. This collection was taken up from those people outside of Israel because the persecution by the Jews of those Jewish people who have converted to Christianity was so great that uh, the people would lose their the, those people who uh, became Christians, would lose their jobs. They wouldn't be able to go to stores and associate with others. They were ostracized in many ways. And so this collection was taken up by people outside of Israel and brought back to Jerusalem by Paul. Uh, and this was a major uh, for lack of a better term, a major job and something that was very important to him because this is where Paul got his start as a Christian and he felt he owed it to the people, uh, that is the Jewish converts in Jerusalem, uh, to help them out. So that's what this collection was all about. And 
the last part is a, as usual, a rather flowery uh, farewell. Okay. Any questions on Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Yes, sir. But not until the fourth century. Yes. My Jean? understanding is that after he sent this letter to the Corinthians, that after that, within five years, that he did come back once in a while to follow up on what he Yes, 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 that's true. Yeah. This was, um, this visit, the original visit and establishment of Corinthians was on second, Paul's second journey. He did visit there again on his third journey. Uh, and actually, Paul did have four journeys, but the last one was to uh, Rome. And that brings up the question of Paul's letter to the Romans, which we will begin next week because of its length and the importance of many of the theological subjects within it. It will probably take two meetings or what we'll do is we'll get through as much as we can next week. And then uh, the last week will be the rest of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans that we weren't able to, to cover next week. And sort of a summary of all of uh, the teachings of this course. <clears throat> Romans was uh, is a much, much different letter than all of the others. It is the longest letter and it is to people that Paul never knew. Paul did not establish uh, the church in Rome. He was hoping to go there and uh, by reading he was <laughs> hoping to go there and he was hoping to get some uh, financial support for a further trip to Spain. We learn this from some of his other letters. Uh, but when you read Romans and some of the wording and the criticism in there, you wonder how can he make friends uh, in order to get support for his trip to Spain. But nevertheless, Romans has a great deal of theology and is the the basis for the church's original theology. And also, as these letters were distributed among all of the Christians, uh, they began to be analyzed by theologians and people of great education and understanding. And it is then that the formalities of Christianity began to be developed. But this wasn't until towards the end of the first century. Up until that time, people did sort of as the best they could because there was no other information. There was no other ways of, of doing it. So Paul's letter, I think, to the Romans is, is very interesting. Uh, but you've got to be very careful because his sentences go on and on and on. Uh, so as I, uh, I mentioned in the homework assignment, 
it is best to try to look for the primary subject of each paragraph and then sort of underline that and then go back and see how that fits with the rest of what you've learned. You have to be very careful in reading Romans. You cannot just go through it and feel that you understand and covered it. So, any questions? Yes, Mike? In regards to the uh, resurrection of the dead, does the church, what, what does the church have to say in regards to burial? I mean, there are many different ways, and obviously different cultures have different ways of dealing with the dead. So, what does the church, uh, I'm not familiar with the church actually Yes, well, there used to be only one guideline that was buried in the ground, period. Uh, no, that was not permitted for a long time. But uh, the church, particularly since Vatican II, has changed their minds a great deal. Uh, they feel that, as Paul just said in this Letter here, uh, that we will all be resur- all the faithful will be resurrected, and it won't make any difference of how you died or where you were buried. Uh, in fact, I officiated at the burial of a very good friend of mine at sea, and I had no problem doing it. Uh, I've also done other burials uh, for non-Catholic people. Um, But now, of course, with cremation being not only practical, uh, but far more popular and less uh, stigma, uh, that has become very uh, acceptable to the church as well. For years, they wouldn't even hold a mass for somebody who was cremated. but now, since Vatican II, that's changed a great deal. Yeah. And again, once you're dead, really kind of what difference does it make? All right, well, have fun reading Romans. <laughs> Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you whenever we can get together and discuss your writings, or the writings of Scripture. So help us to take it seriously and understand it as best we can and ask questions when we don't. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In 